Wrong Didn't Read, the weekly podcast from the Alan Turing Institute, the UK's National Institute for Data Science and AI. Here we are in the wake of another week drenched in delicious AI news bites. Welcome to Too Long Didn't Read. I'm Jonah, a content producer at the Turing, and here's my AI companion. Hi, I'm Smera, a research assistant in data justice and global ethical futures. I'm not, in fact, an AI assistant, but a person who assists in learning more about AI. An AI companion is what I called you. Oops. <laughs> How's your week been, Smear? Have you had a good Yeah, my week's been good. I've just been trying to plan out my menu for a Diwali party I'm going to host on Saturday. And since the Halloween invitation didn't come out to you in time, would you be free this Saturday? I know it's short notice, but it's going to be great food and delicious cocktails. So That's very kind of you, uh, but I'm off to my nephew's 11th birthday this weekend. So uh, happy birthday, Jazzy. He's the one who said he didn't listen because it was boring. (laughs) (laughs) Right, let's get on with it. Okay, this topic has been popping up in my various news feeds for a while now, and it's got to the point where I need to ask you, Shmira, what it's all about. I'm talking about chips. I think you mean crisps. Hey, do you know what? I wasn't even going to make the the dad joke there, but you did, and I'm glad. Over the last month, the US have restricted NVIDIA, a US chip manufacturer, from exporting some AI chips to China. The US government have stated that this is a measure to prevent China from receiving cutting-edge technologies that it could use to strengthen its military, especially in the field of AI. Others have labelled this as a political move to damage China's economy. Smira, let's start at the beginning. I'm aware that a chip is something that helps my electronic items work. It Mm -hmm. is small, has resistors and transistors, and sits on a circuit board that looks a bit like a bird's eye view of a weird green techno city. And (laughs) um, I'm losing it there. Um, What is a chip? What is an AI chip? And what's all the fuss about? A microchip is a phenomenal piece of hardware architecture. It begins with silicon wafers that are laid on with microchips. Delicious. Silicon... Silicon is a semiconductor which allows us to toy with their conductivity or the flow of electrons for in order for tech to work. Okay. The microchip itself takes advantage of this conductivity through transistors and electrical circuits, which determine when electrons will flow and the subsequent actions that they take on. So essentially, like you open a floodgate for the electrons to flow, thereby saying yes or no or turning something on and off. There are over 50 billion transistors on each chip and numerous chips are in our phones as well. So you can just imagine the the scale and quantity of uh, transistors and chips that we're dealing with. These numbers vary depending on the technology in question. So for more advanced electronics like our phones or laptops, we have far more chips and far more transistors. But for, say, something like a toaster, we have fewer transistors and fewer chips because the actions are far more limited. Right. I mean, all of this is to say it had very, very humble beginnings. It began in the years following the Second World War, where only a few transistors could fit on a silicon wafer. With lithography, which is a highly specialized process of light emission that can layer transistors on top of each other, the number of transistors has grown a lot. This is, in essence, Moore's Law, which was an idea by Gordon Moore, who left the company Fairchild Semiconductors 
to build Intel with Bob Noyce. He essentially said that the cost and number of transistors will double every year for the foreseeable future. And this is largely held true. Wow. Moore's Mm. Law. Yeah. And also wow that he would name a law after himself. Always wanting more was more. (laughs) Uh, Samira, (laughs) would you just give me a quick recap of the main points of what you just said, please? So the the basic things to remember is silicon wafer chip on which there are transistors and on which there are different layers of photoresist, which is where the lithography process starts. And basically you build layers upon each other to fit more and more transistors and make it more and more complex for better computing. Well, you learn something new every day, or I do when I'm hanging around with Samira. Um, <laughs> could you go into the lithography process a bit more? How does that help with the with the layering? So in order to t- maximise the space, they started layering it one on top of the other and layering in order to layer, you don't want to affect the functioning of another chip or, you know, any of those yeah. things. So they put a layer of photoresist, which is a material that essentially if you shine light at it, it, it breaks down. So the lithography process is essentially, oh. it it's these very specific laser guided things that have ultra UV light that yeah. are shown through this thing that has like one small gap and then it, it hits that board to cut a hole that, you know, more things yeah, can be laid right. on Yeah, right. And the holes mean that the that it can communicate with the layer above at that exact yeah, point yeah, and nowhere yeah, else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, things like that. So like, wow. So it's like a sort of map. Yeah, yeah. And like it's it's insane. Like now they were they were originally doing lithography with um, UA ultraviolet like rays, and um, now they're reaching a point where like that's not enough. They need something even more fine and even more specific. Like apparently the one that they're dealing with right now is the size of five DNA strands kept side Whoa. by side like that's the level of precision wow. this is why I said even the tech is fascinating yeah, like is it's fascinating. just very very specific like it's becoming so fine that it literally air can absorb it so these have to be put in like highly contained really? devices like you any particle of dust is ruining the entire process and it takes like 12 weeks 24 weeks or whatever so it's very very specific and yeah wow yeah that's really interesting I had no idea so who makes the chips? Do, do China not make their own chips? So this has all been called like a chip war at this at this time. And this so-called chip war has its origins in the Cold War, which is when all of this tech began developing. So the advanced tech we have today in our phones, in our laptops and, and so on, are the result of massive US funding into these products. This was originally done to help fighter jets and navigation systems. And this was important because weight was a huge element here. You had to like reduce the amount of weight and if you could, you know, pack all of that computing onto a plane, it makes it a lot easier. But essentially, there was a lot of US defense funding that went into the development of these products. And Soviet Russia at the time, despite winning parts of the space race, so it was called, was never able to keep up with the designing and the engineering that went behind developing these early microchips, like the like when Bob Noyce and Gordon Moore were at the at the helm of it. They did they didn't have that level of engineering skill. By the time they actually set up the manufacturing, they were already decades behind. US production cycles. And that's a trend that continues to this day, that if you are late, you are severely late. Okay. So at the same time that there was the US, Soviet, Russia, you know, Cold War, there were also labor costs that had to be considered in the manufacturing and the fabricating of microchips, which is where South Korea, Japan, and eventually Taiwan 
came to the rise and are now the leading manufacturers. And all of this was because there was cheaper labor. The governments of these countries, um, again, on the backs of devastating war and conflict that has ravaged their countries, pumped millions into developing these sectors and developing a very, very skilled population that could work in these industries. And now they are a prominent piece in this global semiconductor supply chain puzzle that we have right now. And Another big part of this is the role that China plays. When China began opening up its economy, right, mm -hmm. they were investing more into engineering and skilled labor rather than agriculture and steel. But by the time that they did this, they were already decades behind. Again, I mentioned it even when the Soviets tried to. So like now China is really, really behind. They had tried to develop the tech on their own, but it was more feasible for them to stay in the race, this, this tech race, if they imported manufactured chips from Taiwan. And Taiwan is a country that they believe is not a soft sovereign nation, but actually a part of the PRC or the People's Republic of China itself. Yeah. The reason why this is important is because taking back control of Taiwan, which China has threatened in the past, is seen as a way that China could end up controlling this global chip supply chain and use that tech to power their own military infra infrastructure arms and, you know, kind of lead the world in this and dominate this entire chip war. So so a big part of what we hear about um China and Taiwan is to do with chips. Yep, Blimey. a lot of it. I mean, there's also ideas of, you know, national sovereignty, integrity, yeah, yeah. but we're not a geopolitics podcast, so maybe we should best not get yeah. into that. <laughs> it's it's crazy and, and sad that war leads to such advancements in tech. So why don't we all make our own chips if they're so vital? So with China and Soviet Russia, as I explained in the history of it, they were already decades behind. They tried catching up, but Moore's law, as I explained before, had far surpassed them. To understand this geopolitics and its shortages and, you know, the whole the supply chain, as it were, it begins with understanding what comprises the supply chain itself. So we begin with designing. US firms like Intel and Apple are now designing the chips that power the electronics, be it a laptop or a washing machine. These chips are manufactured almost entirely by two companies, TSMC and Samsung. TSMC is Taiwan Semiconductor, Semiconductor Manufacturing Company and Samsung is Samsung, based in South Korea. Right. But for TM TSMC and Samsung to manufacture, they need lithography machines for fabrication, the process I had explained earlier. And this is produced solely by ASML or Advanced Semiconductor Manufacturing Limited in the Netherlands. It was literally built in a shed in the Philips um, headquarters in, 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 I don't know why I'm saying all of that. Um, <laughs> why didn't they build it in like not a shed if they've got a headquarters? Because they didn't take it seriously. No one took oh. it seriously. This is the biggest, they were just like, eh. Really? Yeah. But coming back to the point, these manufactured chips are then sold to companies in China, which assemble them for iPhones or other products, including those for their own companies like Huawei. So to recap, US firms like Intel and Apple and other firms design the chips. ASML produces the one type of fabrication plant. That fabrication plant is used by TSMC to manufacture the chips and they sell it to countries like China, which assemble the final 
product. And also there are other countries in the final manufacturing step, but these are the main players as of now. So where does NVIDIA fit into all of this? NVIDIA is the largest producer of graphics processing units or GPUs, which are fundamental in the AI development stage. Since China has not achieved that level of sophistication and production that NVIDIA has has done thus far, they will actually lag behind in the AI development race if they don't have access to these kind of chips. And with the concerns that I mentioned earlier, it adds to why the US is restricting the sale of those NVIDIA GPU chips to China. These fabrication places are called fabs, right? Yes, yes, it's called fabs. And what, what an interesting aspect in terms of um, history itself was that Intel used to be a fabricator itself, but they have now turned to being fabless designers of microchips. So that's hey. where the word fabless comes from because they move the fabrication aspect to another country. Wait, yeah. fabless? Fab less so being short for (laughs) yeah once you start getting into it you you'll realize people love the word fab chips wafers there are a bunch of words out there and yeah i literally read chris miller's chip war it is one of the best books i've read this year and it goes into such detail which is why i want to tell all these little bits of the history yeah i can tell you like chips I like yeah. chips too. Uh, it all sounds pretty expensive, right? Yeah, it it's it's very very expensive. TSMC has been doing this whole manufacturing process for decades, and the UK can't just buy the machine from ASML, the Dutch company for fabrication that I'd mentioned, and just set up shop. The technical know how you need, the engineering, the machinery for the final manufacturing itself requires skill and experience that many countries don't have, or even the funds that a lot of countries just don't have. Okay, so. Uh, Bringing it back to me and people like me, um, I presume there's there's going to be supply chain issues with these chip wars. Um, is there? Yeah, it's it's there. There are already massive shortages that many companies are facing. And some of these shortages can be aggravated by conflict or wars, say the Russia-Ukraine war and the issues with fuel production that affected a lot of supply chains. Microchips were one of them. But the biggest reason that probably affects the delivery of the final product is that it takes a lot of time to build these machines, be it the fabrication or the manufacturing of it. That goes into weeks, if not months. And I mean, with the shortages is also the concern of it getting more expensive and more expensive microchips means that the consumer like you and me are going to have to face that final cost. And the consumer always loses. Well, thanks, Mira. That has been a whistle-stop tour through chips and the history. Yeah, but there's so many. I mean, we've taken so long to just explain these few elements of it, but there are so many more stories and histories and tech connected to how microchips work and the chip war itself. Maybe, I don't know, Jonah, maybe I could tell you in the future why Silicon Valley is called Silicon Valley and, you know, aspects like that, which is, again, a huge part of the discourse on semiconductors and microchips. Is it? Well, we'll save that for another episode, Mira. I think you've gone above and beyond teaching us a little bit well actually quite a lot about chips it's fascinating thank you this story is one i learned about from very aitken's excellent turing lecture out now on the anna turing institute youtube channel we'll link it which was all about addressing the risks of generative ai very references people training ChatGPT in the text it can't use The work was outsourced to people in Kenya who had to label those texts, which meant, of course, they had to read those texts. Proper nasty stuff like child abuse and bestiality, and many suffered serious mental health issues such as PTSD because of it. 
The internet is bad enough when your searches are innocent. I can't imagine how bad the stuff it deems to be bad is. Samira, can you tell me a bit about the technology here? Why do people have to do this job? So models like ChatGPT and other large language models essentially scrape the web for data. And this data from the web is largely unlabeled. But during the training process, they can also be finely tuned with label data or annotated data. This includes labels for toxic content, including the the examples that you'd given before on child abuse, bestiality and other such nasty descriptions. Can I just interrupt and, and yeah. ask what you mean by labeling? Yes, essentially there's... When we when models are trained, you have to give them clear, distinct labels for them to start like learning the process of it and start to understand what those labels mean and associate data to that kind of a label. So if it but for large language models, if it is just scraping the Internet for data and it goes and sees a Reddit post, it's not going to associate it with the labels that we have for it. It's just going to chew up the, the text that's there. But you need a human in there to label some of it and be like, this is this is a sentence. This is a phrase. This is a this is an adage, you know, things like that, so that the, the model can further classify that data, that, that raw data that it has into specific actions and then use those labels to further fine tune their answers in the future. I had to Google adage then. I say adage. <laughs> <laughs> and so this isn't a job that can be done by machine learning alone. You need the humans at the beginning. I mm-hmm. kind of naively would have thought that AI would have done that stuff without humans having to do anything. Do we need an AI to train the AI? <laughs> we need a human to train the AI. But because a model at the heart of it needs to be taught through different techniques like supervised learning or reinforcement learning, which are different algorithmic techniques that trainers use where the human de- developer oversees the training and rewards the model for following the right path that it needs to follow to get the answer that it needs to follow. With generative AI that scrapes the web, they do not have that human oversight and they consume data without any knowledge of what exactly is bad. So the data labelers in Kenya will label harmful data and send it back to the developer and the developer will train and fine tune the model to prevent that harmful content from being outputted or released as an answer in a chatbot query. Okay, yeah, it sounds terrible. And from what I understand, these workers, these outsourced workers aren't always getting the support that they deserve and need, right? They're paid very meager wages. And some might argue that these wages might be in line with their national economic trends and income trends. But that doesn't really address the issue here. They're dealing with a very toxic interface. And if they continue doing that work, they need to deserve they deserve the compensation and the support. These workers are not given that support in terms of, say, counseling and group therapy, which can help them cope with the trauma of being exposed to really, really toxic content that honestly none of us should be. And if you're exposed to it on a regular basis, you can just imagine the effect yeah, it has. Yeah. So the public face of a lot of these companies are very progressive and seem to value fairness. But some of the articles I read following this story suggest that when it comes to the workers who aren't in the sort of shop front, so to speak, fairness goes out the window. Um, A lot of these companies are employing people who might have little in the way of job options, such as refugees and inmates. And they're sourcing them from countries such as Kenya, India, Mexico and the Philippines, where they can pay them less. Yeah, they're... 
I mean, they're all hidden behind this tinted window because none of us out here on the consumer end ever end up interacting with these elements of the supply chain. It's cheaper to outsource these tasks at a lower wage to the countries that you'd mentioned than actually employ people in countries where there is, say, a living wage or a national wage limit, as well as labor protections. Some say that there is an element of neocolonization in all of this, wherein they view it as a replication of the labor and material supply chains that used people at less wages and very often no wages at all to supply industries in the US, UK and Belgium and so on with that material, which was the part of the Industrial Revolution. And this, it isn't just a case of labor exploitation in data labeling. We see this also in textile manufacturing in the fast fashion supply chain, where laborers in countries like Bangladesh, India or Vietnam face brutal working condition just to churn out products for our consumption around the world and often for a very short use. So this is a regular trend. It's just another trend that we see in AI. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, even in these transatlantic countries and the countries that we live in, Content moderators are also there for companies like Facebook or Instagram, where they have to face, you know, toxic and vile images um, and text, of course, to flag them for abusive and harmful content. But here we might have more strengthened labor unions and and whatnot to who have advocated for safeguards and ensured that counseling and treatment is given to mitigate those harms. But these kind of support systems are not available around the world. So can we expect the companies themselves to crack down on this or are there regulations in place or coming? So the work that, that's in question, especially with Kenya, is work that was outsourced to contractors by the company itself. So it was the contractor's responsibility to provide safeguards and protections And it's an easy way to use arguments like this for big tech companies to avoid that responsibility towards fair and responsible AI across the life cycle, not just in the development or the release of it, but in the data phase that exists before, you know, the training itself. Um, And these contractors work in countries, again, without minimum wage or labor protection. So they're not under a national directive to protect their employees. But we could maybe see a future where this element of the supply chain is more closely scrutinized. Uh, Radical AI Network is a is a resource that I found which looks into critical technical practice, advocacy and co-production as different methods to really investigate what's happening over here and try to make it better for the people who are affected, negatively affected by this. I mean, I don't know, Jonah, maybe we could have a future where there are global restrictions in the movement of um, this data and in the use of this data, similar to what's there with the movement of conflict minerals or blood diamonds, where there are specific certification procedures and oversight that prevents the sale of goods from eras that, say, employ children or harmful labor practices. So maybe that's something that we can look forward to. But of course, that always comes with their own issues. Yeah, yeah. yeah and I suppose it's tricky because you know, with all the best intentions in the world, trying to help people and raise awareness of people who might be being exploited, um, the very act of doing that could lead to them being without a job. I mean, that's that's one of like the biggest dichotomies here where, you know, bringing an end to this would mean a loss of jobs in, in countries that often might not, that already have lower employment trends and might not have the availability of jobs in more skilled fields. And for a lot of people, it might be some form of income versus maybe not having an income at all. So it's it's a big question of balancing, you know, balancing giving a job 
and understanding the costs that come with it. And this is this is where that companies and, you know, governments, national or international bodies need to come together and decide how that's going to be done. Yeah. I'm amazed this isn't something we hear about more in the news. It's bonkers. It, it seems there's this huge disparity between the, the sort of customer facing like brand employees and the people who are working behind the behind the scenes. Um, presumably there needs to be more work done to explore the ethics of AI systems as both causes and consequences of unjust labour conditions. Yes, definitely. There's a lot more work that needs to be done. Um, it's 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 why in many episodes I've you know I've emphasised the need to include the people harmed by these practices in the conversation. See, I don't like the term global south, but you know we have to include those countries, these formerly colonised countries, formerly deindustrialised countries to represent their lived experiences at global platforms, say like the AI Safety Summit. We need more people there. For instance, in in our work on advancing data justice in both research and practice, one of the projects that I work on, we also acknowledge that there needs to be an inclusion within countries. There, These conversations that are held at a national scale should include people from rural areas, from deprived communities, empower them so that they can be a part of this process. These larger companies with more money shouldn't be exploiting these countries and the employment loopholes that they have, but the countries themselves should do enough to make sure that those loopholes never exist yeah. and a form of defence against, say, exploitative industries. So is there any hope for individuals facing exploitation like this? I mean, I've mentioned the advocacy organisations and, you know, the labour groups that have been advocating for better working conditions. But as individuals, you and I, Jonak, we can lobby our ministers and, you know, ask them to bring these debates to the forefront of a national conversation, especially because because of where we are right now, which is in countries that are at the forefront of this of this AI race, but they're not doing enough to protect the people who, you know, are contributing to this outside of the country. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I had no idea that to create a safe AI tool, you might have to put a lot of people at risk. Is it a bird? Is it a plane? No. <laughs> no, it's supercomputer. That's the title of this one. Smira, this week I read that both Bristol and Cambridge are to receive a supercomputer. I thought to myself, that's great news. Then I wondered, is it? Then I realised I didn't know what a supercomputer is. I think the word super has led me to believe it's the answer to all my dreams, is it? It could be. Ooh. I mean, with the work that they're doing. Just to give a bit of background, the University of Cambridge will be working on the Dawn supercomputer and Isambard AI will be in Bristol University. The latter will have over 5,000 NVIDIA microchips. Ooh, See, I told you, there. it is everywhere. Yeah. But... To answer your question, yes. Supercomputers essentially have the kind of memory and computing that puts our our so-called powerful laptops to shame. They have far more advanced computing and can compute that data at a phenomenal speed, which is huge for domains like drug discovery. So as well as denoting something positive, the word super also conjures up things that are big. How big is a supercomputer? It's massive. It is huge. It's, it, so how big? How how many giraffes could you fit in one, roughly? I I think a more accurate metric is a whale. It is. It could be the size of a whale. And to put the size of a whale into pers- perspective, the whale's heart is the size of a car. 
so massive. Are we huge. talking blue? Yeah, blue, blue, big blue. Big blue. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah, so these are huge in terms of, of physical size, as I've explained, but they are also huge in terms of the size of computing that goes into all of it. It's measured with um, flops or floating points per second, which is the metric for computing. To put that in, to put the, uh, the sheer scale of the flops that are used for this, an Xbox has 10 teraflops, which is measured in the billions. 10 teraflops is billions. Isambard and Dodd will be processing with petaflops, which is in the quadrillion range, and exaflops, which is in the quintillion range. So that's 10 followed by 18 zeros. Oh like, my gosh, that is yeah. a I lot mean, I of can't, flop. I can't waste podcast time on like counting out the number of zeros, but <laughs> it's huge. And yeah, the, the massive computing is basically what we're talking about. All right, then more importantly, what, what are they doing? What's the point? Why? Why so many flops? Why so many whales? Basically to make sure that the UK is not a flop in the AI race. They... Look, Jonah, you are training me. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so they're going to be used to train, you know, large language models and other gen- and AI systems for drug discovery and weather forecasting. The early iterations of Isambard were already used for weather forecasting in um, alliance with the, the Met the Met Office. So, um, you know, all these are massive amounts of data that we're getting and we can use it to better compute at a faster scale, something that, of course, our laptops can do. But yeah, they've used earlier iterations of Isambard for modeling the COVID-19 virus and the vaccine response, which is massive. So if we have, hopefully we don't, but when if and when pandemics come, we are more prepared because we're already using these supercomputers to look out for drug discovery. They're also used for the general medical sciences in terms of other diseases that they've not been able to to calculate with by ourselves, but maybe a supercomputer is going to be able to do it. So where can you, like, if you're interested in what they're being used for, where can you go to get updates? You can go to the University of Bristol website or the Cambridge University website where they have up, they've given regular updates on what they're doing with Dawn and with the three phases of um, Isambard already. And you can reach out to them and learn more about the research that they're doing. I mean, the re- researchers honestly just need a space to speak about the work that they've done. <laughs> and if it is not protected by national security interests, they would love to speak to you more about it. So it sounds like this is going to really put the UK on the AI map. I mean, let's be real, the UK drew all of those maps. <laughs> and some of us have our concerns yep, with that. Fair enough. So that's about it this week's mirror. Um, but regular listeners will know we like to end on a positive note. And uh, do you have anything to feel optimistic about in this crazy AI world, Smira? Yeah, I do have a positive story, and this is a good instance of how deepfakes can be used for positive outcomes. This weekend, that's Sunday the 12th, it will be Deepavali or Diwali or the Hindu festival that celebrates light over darkness after the end of the great epic of Ramayana. <clears throat> Allow me to try Deepavali Habada Hadika Sabashi Yagalu. Yes! I know my dad's going to be really happy to hear this. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's usually, it's it's a time that, you know, I should look forward to a lot as a child. And 
um, a huge part of this used to be the ads that used to be screened on TV at the same time. Some of the most impactful ones came from Cadbury, the, the chocolate company, where they were, they've shown different stories over the years, like the families that were separated from partition, partition reuniting during the celebration of Diwali, because it's not just, it's seen as a celebration of light over darkness, but also bringing together of families and celebrating oneness, community, all of that. And they really, they knew how to hit that emotional chord. So we've, we've over the years, I've definitely seen my fair share of really, really emotional Cadbury ads. And we just get a uh, drumming gorilla. That's all we get. <laughs> Cadbury's don't do emotion for us. We just get a drumming gorilla. So Cadbury has um, developed a, a platform called not just a Cadbury ad.com, which is a website that is using AI to allow um, small businesses to create their own custom ads and use you know, the the recreation of one of the biggest Bollywood stars, Shah Rukh Khan's face and voice in a way that you're essentially using this this massive actor to promote your brand and your business. That's awesome. Is it free? Yes, it's free. And it's going to be huge for a lot of the small businesses who need a big boost in a time when, say, the economy is not doing well and, you know, really strengthen it. And you, with the role that Bollywood has on in India and, and the cultural facets behind it, I'm sure a lot of small business owners and and people themselves are going to be very excited to see more of these ads coming from your local, you know, shopkeeper. That's awesome. But I will, but I will add the caveat that this is deep fake technology. So yes. although this is being done in with the consent of these actors, we have to keep in mind that this is maybe a positive way of using deep fakes, but there are also harmful ones which we've explored in other episodes. Yeah, let's keep it optimistic for the end now, though. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Thank you very much, Smira. As always, you've been wonderful. Um, Smira, a few weeks ago, we took the title of your job, Data Justice, Global Ethical Futures, and created the acronym DJ Jeff for you. And um, I've created a sort of remix of our intro music, a little homage to you um, and a demonstration of what you mean to me. Would you like to hear it? Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) Okay, here goes. I've just started off as a DJ. DJ Jeff. DJ Jeff. Ooh, vulnerable groups. DJ Jeff, DJ Jeff. Ooh, biases that exist in society. Well, I like that. I love me a little dung beetle. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. (laughs) Did you like it? This is so good. This is so good. (laughs) It's so funny. It's classic. That has been Too Long Didn't Read. We read so you don't have to feel... Oh, no. (laughs) That ruins my joke. We read so you didn't have to feel blue. (laughs) Oh, I wonder if there's a limit to my terrible wordplay. We learned that the chip war is steeped in historical, geopolitical and economic complexities. A triple cooked chip, if you will. We learned about the exploitation of outsourced workers by some of the biggest brands in AI. And we learned that a supercomputer is both super and a computer. 
Thanks again to Smira for her limitless knowledge and Jessie behind the scenes for her limitless patience. This is still a very new enterprise for us, so do drag that mouse pointer over to the click or like or follow button. And we would love to hear from you. Praise, questions or suggestions to podcast at turing.ac.uk. And you can find us on Instagram at the Turing Inst. And until next week, um, goodbye. Goodbye from me. Shall we hear your uh, remix one more time? Yes. I've just started off as a DJ. DJ Jeff, DJ Jeff. Ooh, vulnerable groups. DJ Jeff, DJ Jeff. Ooh, biases that exist in society. I like that. I love me a little dung beetle.